Hello and welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co-host Ian Hamilton. And you can't see it, but I'm crying right now. I'm John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows and sometimes entire streaming services that were canceled after one season. Isn't that right, John? That is right. We are screaming to the heavens over the graves of these shows, figuring out what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Today, we are on week two of Quibuary. And Ian, as I say every week in Quibuary, a happy Quibuary to you. And a happy Quibbrewary to you too, John. There is a special place in hell for your R's. <laughs> oh... Each week, we are going to be examining a different genre within the Quibi world. Uh, Quibi the is... Quibi Runiverse. <laughs> God, I'm going to freaking punch you through the Zoom. <laughs> Last week, we looked at competition shows. This week, we are looking at drama shows. We're also going to peel back the layers of the onion that was Quibi and its storied history in 2020. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about what we've been watching. Ian, what has been on your docket? I watched The Watcher on Netflix, starring oh, yeah. Bobby Cannavale and... Coolidge, on... right? No. Oh, well, yeah. Jennifer Coolidge is in it and Naomi Watts. Oh, okay. And uh, it's a Ryan Murphy product. I started watching it because our friends at Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast... A year or two ago, they did an episode about the Watcher and that house and the letters that somebody is writing to it. And the real story of it is like strange and fascinating and creepy. Um, Ryan Murphy took the story and... Murphy did? Murphy did. He added Murphy's Law? He applied Murphy's Law, John. Apologies. I went for the pun so quickly that I didn't use proper verbiage. Yeah, I'm trying to make a joke about kinetic energy, but I guess I don't remember what Murphy's Law really is. Or kinetic energy? Uh, no. <laughs> Nor centrifugal energy. Force. Anyway, uh, the real story is interesting. The show is Murphy-fied, and I mean, it was pretty good. Like, I like the way it ended up. Uh, there's a lot of filler in there. There's a lot of, like, overly dramatic oozing of <laughs> in it. But uh, I actually thought it was pretty good. Um, I wouldn't really recommend it, but I did have fun. Uh, Natalie is more familiar with Ryan Murphy products than I am. So she just kept going, ugh, and rolling her eyes and walking out of the room and then walking back in to continue watching it. But anytime there was like a Murphy stamp in there, she just couldn't stand it. On a scale from Murph-tastic to deep in the Murph, uh, how would you rank it? <laughs> I would say I'm bobbing in the Murph. Okay. Yeah. With this one. That's fair. It's a, it's a gentle Murph. Yeah. John, what have you been watching? Have I talked about RRR on this podcast yet? No. Uh, what is that? What is RRR? My friend, you have not been awoken. You have not seen the light. RRR is a Tollywood movie, uh, not Bollywood. It's a different part of India, Tollywood. It's a movie by a director, S.S. Rajamuli. And it is 
everything a movie can and should be. It is an action historical epic that defies the laws of physics and sense to create one of the most purely entertaining three hours of pure cinema baby that I have seen. I have converted a few people to this. It's a tough movie to describe. It's basically these two guys who become friends. They're both sort of revolutionaries in their own way during the colonial rule of India that team up, backstab each other, use lions as weapons. Uh, One at one point gets on the other's shoulders and they do a piggyback sort of shooting uh, escape scene. It is wild and fun and heartfelt and the music is amazing and I adore it. And I have since watched a different two-part five-and-a-half-hour movie from the same director that came out a few years before called Bahubali and Bahubali 2. And it's it's intoxicating, and I just want more of it always. Wait, are Bahubali and Bahubali 2 each five hours? No, the two combined are. Each of them is about 245. Okay, and going back to using tigers as weapons, I believe you said. Oh, yeah. I'm imagining the Power Rangers robot where they all come together to be different limbs, and the two tigers are real tigers, and they are limbs of one person, and he is fighting people with tiger arms. Am I anywhere close? You are not, but it would be just as awesome. I'm imagining like a Kung Fu hustle meets the raid Bollywoodified. It's that same kind of joy, more Kung Fu hustle, I would say. There are so many moments in RRR and both of the Bahubali movies where you just look at your screen and you just think, dear God, I have ascended. It is so pure and joyful and crazy and cool and sincere at the same time. I It's a tough feeling to describe because it is just so much all the time. I love it. Well, speaking of a pure, joyful ascension into heaven, that is so much all the time. I know you're trying to transition into showtime, but I just need to be clear to our listeners. We're not going to top the joy of these movies. I need that to be clear. (laughs) Still, it's showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! Today, we are talking about the dramas of Quibi. Ian, do you remember from last week what a Quibi is? Yeah, a Quibi is when the electricity goes out in your house and you have to read by candlelight and none of your phones or laptops are charged and you hearken back to an older, simpler time that is much more boring. Isn't that right? Ah, you're really, really close. But a quibby is the combinations of the word quick bite, and it is a piece of content that is somewhere between six and ten minutes. It was on the platform quibby, which launched in April of 2020 and was shut down later that year. All of the content was then shuffled on over to the Roku channel where it currently lives. We sold are for scraps to Roku channel, I believe. Truly. Do you know how much it was sold for? I will get no, to that. No, please tell me. Well, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. 
where we talk about the end of Quibi. But if you want to hear about the origins of Quibi, listen last week. Today, I wanted to talk about the launch of Quibi in April of 2020. Ian, you remember really craving a mobile-only platform when you were stuck in your home in April of 2020, right? I remember being on my phone and on the internet a lot, but I don't remember wanting to be on them any more than I already was. Oh, I remember you being just thirsty for that high-quality mobile-exclusive content. Well, I am a preteen, and (laughs) I do only like 30 seconds of footage on my phone, scrolling through that over and over again for hours, making people watch those 30 seconds going, ha ha ha, isn't this funny? Watch it. Watch more. Watch it again. That short attention span of yours is really going to be your downfall. I've seen it in the cards. (laughs) I think that it was an interesting proposition to throw at people. I mean, as we talked about last week, it was years in the making where Jeffrey Katzenberg was developing this idea, bringing in all this talent, paying people a ton of money to develop content for Quibi across a bunch of different genres. And it was all building up to this April of 2020 launch. COVID happened. The entire pitch for Quibi was essentially, you know, hey, you're waiting for the bus. Watch eight minutes of quality content. But people were just kind of in their homes. Uh, Still, Quibi launched and I don't know if you remember this. It had a very interesting proposition at the beginning of it. There was a three-month free trial period. Now that's an indecent proposal. It is. It's also the main reason that I got it on day one. Because I was Ah. like, I've got three months to figure this thing out and see if it's going to be interesting at all. For context, most streaming services had... And not even really anymore, but they had about one month of a free trial tops. Mm -hmm. Three months was like unheard of. And so what they were doing was they were trying to get a lot of downloads early. You know, it's a new concept, high quality, short form content. We'll see how this does. It launched. It's like I'm I'm at a yoga studio right now where you pay $30 for unlimited classes for a month. And then they jack it up to $45 a week for one class a week. So, you know, in about 24 days, <laughs> I'm going to be canceling my membership. <laughs> but they were hoping to just ride that out a little bit and say, hey, look at us. We're populating with so much stuff. TechCrunch reported that Quibi saw 300,000 downloads on its launch day. And by the end of its first week, it had seen 1.7 million downloads. Okay. The price point, though, Ian, do you remember how much Quibi cost? $3. Quibi's cheapest tier was $5 a month, and that was ad-supported, or you could get it ad-free for $8 a month. So about the same from an introductory level as like Apple TV+. And it also didn't offer any annual subscriptions, which I thought was interesting. But again, they were really betting on these shows gaining some momentum, getting some buzz around them. And I think one of the big sort of drivers for that, at least from a prestige perspective, were these dramas, which were doled out like TV shows, but they also kind of played out 
a little like movies that were just kind of broken up into smaller and smaller chunks. So yeah, the two shows that we're going to talk about today, I feel like one is just a movie that's broken up into small chunks. The other one feels more like it's trying to be episodic to me. Yeah. And I think they positioned everything as a TV show, not necessarily making it a mini series out the gate. There were very few quote unquote mini series that they had, but I'm sure they could have found an excuse to make a second season for whatever caught on for them. I agree. As we sort of talked about last week, the competition side of things, they were just throwing concepts at the wall, hoping that they would be able to get some traction. The dramas, I think they were really investing a lot of money, a lot of heart, a lot of talent into these shows to hopefully maybe extend the life of some of these franchises. Like we've got some big, big hitters that are playing in these two shows that we are going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. The two shows are hashtag free Rayshon. We cannot say the title of the show without throwing in the hashtag legally, right? Or else Antoine Fuqua is going to come after us, I think. Well, you know what bothers me? Because when I do my hashtags, I capitalize the first letter of each word. And that is how I've done it since Twitter existed. No one else seems to be on board with this idea, but I need it. I need it to separate the words, John. I agree. I think there needs to be some syntax to hashtags. Thank you. And But anyway, this title is all undercase. Or all uppercase, depending on where you look at it. Oh. But we're also going to be talking about The Fugitive, uh, which is, of course, a continuation of the TV show, I believe, from the 60s or 70s. Also, obviously, remade into the 1993 Harrison Ford classic. There And Tommy Lee Jones, John. Okay. Because, you see, it's not just about the fugitive. It's also about the agent that is stalking him. Yes. Stalking is an interesting word, especially in the case of this fugitive. But we'll get to that later. These shows were definitely trying to play in the field that had been set up pretty much since House of Cards first debuted on Netflix. The prestige TV drama. The thing that is going to bring accolades to the new streaming service to gain that notoriety. Ian, what are your thoughts on the evolution of the prestige TV drama? We've spoken on this podcast before about how first Netflix and streaming services, they just want the prestige and the attention. So they throw a lot of money at some well-regarded artist, be them a David Fincher Or for Apple Plus, it's, you know, Reese Witherspoon and Steve Carell and or be you a Joseph Gordon-Levitt for Apple Plus (laughs) as well. Uh, There are other examples. But so it used to be like, hey, let's let's get people's attention by bringing in all this premium must watch water cooler television. And then what we've been evolving into is what keeps people's attention it's garbage tv (laughs) that they will just kind of stream for hours and hours and hours at a time or something that's nostalgic to them usually a sitcom from the 90s or early 2000s let's give it a reboot why not you know so like that's 
that's really it. And and then you get into your discovery pluses. So, <laughs> right, that's the evolution of streaming. Bring you in with a premium drama, then keep you watching with nostalgic sitcoms, then make it a part of your life. Just hook its fangs and its talons into your head and your eyes and your brain with just garbage infotainment and reality television. Yeah, streaming services are basically just Diet Coke. Now they are. (laughs) Well, let's break down each of these shows right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. One week into the Quibissance, or the Quibberth, if you will, we saw the premiere of Hashtag Free Rayshawn, a very of-the-moment drama about a man who may have accidentally killed a police officer who has essentially been trapped in his home by the police, afraid to leave his house for fear of being gunned down by the police, and in turn starting a sort of online social movement to hopefully protect his life as well as the life of his wife and son, while also negotiating with a local police officer. Ian, this show ran on a daily basis during weekdays from April 13th to April 29th of 2020. George what? Floyd, yeah, George Floyd was killed on May 25th. Uh, but the show ends with all the hashtags George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Did they add that later? I think they added that later. Yeah. Wow. Because so it's important to add that this show is about a black man who feels he's being framed by the police and in many ways is. Yes. Uh, and it's about... Um, Innocent black people being incarcerated and killed by police, especially with a high percentage, possibly the highest percentage in the country in Louisiana. They throw out some stats. uh, As well as some very aggressive accents. (laughs) Yes, there was one that was very toidal soupy. See our Swamp Thing episode. But so this is a central part of the show and when I was watching it, I, all I could think about was when did this air? Because Quibi launched April 2020, which was before May, June, July 2020. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it did feel in retrospect very reactionary. But as we can kind of see, it was very ahead of the curve and just really shows, I think, the pervasiveness of this issue. And really, I think, brings its message home in such a impactful way. I mean, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but the entire sort of thesis of the show is this man, Rayshawn, who is played by Stephen James. Uh, Did you ever see Homecoming, Ian? 
No, and what's weird is I recognize him. I've seen him in things. I looked through his IMDb, and all I could see were things I've meant to watch and haven't yet. <laughs> if Beale Street Could Talk is like the epitome of a movie that you feel like you should watch and you haven't. I loved it. but You know what? I That trailer played before like every movie I saw at Brooklyn Academy of Music for months, <laughs> yeah. and I, I never saw it. That's why. He's great in it. He plays... Rayshon, who is a retired special forces officer who, I mean, I guess we could kind of get into it. He was at a drug deal. He basically decided to step away from that drug deal. The officer kind of lured him back into it, threw an Uzi onto him. And then the as the cops were coming in, he ran over the cop that was in the car with him that cop ended up dying so the cops that are chasing him and eventually follow him back to his apartment building where he's in the apartment with his wife and son for most of the show they label him a cop killer and therefore he's hostile and so it's become sort of a hostile sort of hostage negotiation right and the way that this unfolds it's so fast yeah it's like he gets into his apartment building then these four cops that were chasing him immediately start bashing on every door in the building start uh you know pointing their guns at everyone in the building forcing them out of their apartment buildings they just empty out this building except for the fact that ray sean barricades himself and his family in his apartment and it's one of these things that as the show escalates i just kept being like you know if anyone would have just stopped and had to get a warrant, like none of this would happen. Yeah. You know, like it just keeps the the cops kind of exaggerate what happened mm-hmm. to maybe make it look like they're innocent and he's all wrong when that is obviously not the case that we come to know by the end of it. And then because they've exaggerated just, you know, the SWAT team's coming in, the reporters are there, the news, then all of a sudden it's like they've already forced the entire building out of their homes. They're escalating the situation a thousand times higher than it needs to be, all because of what exactly, you know? And this isn't a criticism of the show either. This is like clearly a criticism of the policing methods. Yeah, the cops are extremely heated right from second one. I mean, the show opens with a car chase where Rayshon is fleeing the police after feeling as if he's been set up in this way. The thing that I really admire about the show from a storytelling perspective is that Rayshon isn't 100% innocent. At Mm-mm. all. I mean, he showed up for this drug deal. He backed out of it because either he smelled pig or he didn't want to. Those motivations are murky. But in any case, that's not what the show is about. The show isn't about whether Rayshon is guilty or not. The show is about whether Rayshon's crime is warranted. The show is about whether Rayshon's crime warrants the death penalty, which it clearly does not. And it's what the cops are sort of after. They see him as a hostile threat and they want to kill him. And that is where another officer, Lieutenant Stephen Pointsey, played by the great Lawrence Fishburne, 
Larry, as he's sometimes called in the Ebert and Siskel interviews? We call him Larry, for sure. We have a kinship. I've told you my Lawrence Fishburne story, right? Did you see him on Broadway or something? No, I saw him entering a Broadway theater. Do you know this? No, continue. So I was eating dinner at Junior's, which is right next to the Booth Theater, where he was doing a one-man play about Thurgood Marshall. A Let's very... be honest. You got onion rings. Oh, of course. And so we were sitting outside, and who pulls up in a motorcycle and a leather jacket with a big-ass red dragon on the back of it but Lawrence MFing Fishburne? And he just kind of hops off, hands it to the stagehand, gives a little salute to the people eating at Junior's, and walks in to be Thurgood Marshall for 90 minutes. It was wow. riveting. I love Lawrence Fishburne. He, but his character here is a cop who clearly has a bit of a storied past himself. And because of a series of circumstances, Rayshon really only feels comfortable talking to our boy, Larry. And Larry treats him as a, as a human. Basically, Larry says outright, I want to see you live through this day. And however I can do that to get you and your family out of there, I want to make this work. Right. And what was very interesting about their dynamic is that, I'm just going to call him Larry, was the bridge between Sean and the police department. He's trying to back the police and the SWAT team off of doing anything too drastic. And he's also trying to get... Rayshon out of his apartment building so that he can just survive this incident. Whereas Rayshon, he is held up in his apartment because at one point he says, after a black man's killed by the police, there's always a video that comes out later that exonerates him. Get me the video and I won't leave my apartment until I have the video. Mm-hmm. And those two wants between our two heroes collide because Lawrence Fishburne's just like, I need you to stay alive today. And Ray Sean's like, I'm dead unless I get this one thing. Lawrence Fishburne cannot get him this one thing. Even though they see the video, the assistant district attorney like turns away while it's playing. And they're like, well, when you get out, you can have your lawyer request the video. And it's like, why doesn't the assistant district attorney just watch it right now. You know, yeah. it it highlights a lot of weird problems and biases and the way that the, you know, police and law enforcement or whatever uh, rush the situation and how you can see that some people have a sort of nefarious means to an end, mm-hmm. like the one, you know, mostly Louisiana police officer does, but how other people are just caught up in the situation because of what their job is, Yeah, that it makes everything much worse, right? Yeah, the idea of truth versus process and how sometimes those things can kind of hammer against each other in a way that does not benefit the person who is being accused. And so... Rayshon knows this and he especially understands this after, you know, police are, as you said, battering down every door in the apartments. He's got guns that are pulled on him. He's after this huge car chase 
And so he holds up in his apartment. He starts live streaming and he gets a bit of a, a following. There's a crowd gathered outside. He's also in there. I think it's essential to know that he's in there with his wife, Taisha, played by Jasmine Cephas Jones, uh, who was Peggy from Hamilton, as well as oh. his, yeah, as well as his young son, uh, Ray Ray or Little Ray. I liked Ray Ray. He was good. He was a cute kid. And one of these sort of inciting incidents is that early on, Rayshon, as he's live streaming, basically says, they've got me cornered. Look at these cops. He puts his phone out of the window. Our most trigger-happy cop, played by Skeet Ulrich, basically says, I see gun, and the entire police force that's out there just opens fire on this building with the wife and son also inside, which uh, sours the situation immensely. Yeah, also an entire crowd is around watching while they just, four cops just unload their guns into this window. And it's like, hey, you don't know, other people could still be in there just because you bashed in every door. It doesn't mean you got everyone out of the apartment building. You know, ugh, this, these trigger happy MFers. Yeah. And the more people get involved, the more they want to see the situation resolved, you know, quote unquote, quickly, which, uh, peacefully and without a black man getting killed basically. Yeah. But they, especially once SWAT gets involved where, uh, Daniel Sinjata, which that was nice to see him. And was he the head of SWAT? Yeah, he was the head of SWAT. He's been in a million things. I know him from like devil wears Prada. He was also in dark Knight rises too. Yeah. He's been in a ton of things, usually as a cop. Right. He's got a resting cop face. He also has kind of the build of a tough guy, you know. Mm-hmm. But like an actual tough guy, not like a tough wise guy. You mean you? Whoa. You big muffin. All of this builds and builds and builds to some very, very tense scenes. I mean, the show is really just playing on a knife's edge the entire time. You don't know whether you're going to start an episode and it's going to be a total shootout or it's going to be an episode where Stephen James's character, Rayshawn, is just trying to quietly connect with his wife, who I thought their relationship was really interesting too. So Taisha, Rayshawn's wife, is there trying to protect her son, trying to protect her husband. But I like that their marriage wasn't very clean cut. You know, there's also some very strong allusions to Rayshawn cheating on her and potentially getting a neighbor down the hall pregnant through his affair. So they have their own stuff to work through, but that doesn't mean that that love is gone or that she wants him to die or get arrested. She wants, she loves him but their relationship at this moment is still very difficult. And so you can see the sort of balance of that, I think, in Jasmine Cephas Jones's performance, too. That idea that she is pissed off that he has put them in this situation. And she is also scared of the 
potential outcomes that could come from this, but she's also very understanding and empathetic to the situation and wants to stick by his side in order to get him through this day. It complicates their relationship, though, because she can't fully trust him. Mm. So even though she wants them all to survive, there's a bit of an aspect of like, what did you do? And he's like, I didn't do anything. She's like, okay, what did you do, though? Yeah. And she gets, little by little, she gets more of a story out of him. And so she has to trust him with her life, but then also she does not fully trust him, which... Yeah, it was just kind of interesting because it's the three of them stuck in that apartment together. Um, what was weird was they kept calling it a hostage situation. And it wasn't until like episode, I think, eight out of 12 that I was like, OK, I, I guess the wife and the son are kind of hostages because they're stuck in the apartment until this is resolved. But it's not really a hostage situation. Yeah, not in the traditional sense, but it's a hostage situation. I think it's being approached by the police as a hostage situation because they can't go in guns blazing because there are innocent lives in that home. Like they label him a dangerous threat, but they don't label Taisha and Ray Ray dangerous at all. They would be innocent bystanders in that. Right. That doesn't stop them from shooting at the windows though. It doesn't, but that's sort of early on in the situation. So when they label it a hostage situation, I think that's when they have to, be more cognizant of that. And I mean, obviously that is hugely driven by Lawrence Fishburne's character. Speaking of Lawrence Fishburne's character is really great and complicated too, because in Lawrence Fishburne's performance is fear. And when you get fear, you make him a lot more of a human, especially in this situation. Like there's a moment where he's trying to talk to Rayshon in the sort of crack of Rayshon's doorway. And Skeet Ulrich and his trigger-happy buddies come up behind him. And so Rayshon puts Larry at gunpoint. And you see on Lawrence Fishburne's face, not the sort of like, stand down, stand down, that sort of calm and measured thing. He is freaked out that he is about to get gunned down by what should be his colleagues. But, or by the person who's got like everyone's got a gun on Larry. On Lord, yeah, that's true. He's been pointed a gun on by the SWAT, by Ray Sean, and by all of his colleagues. And I think uh, his, if you wanted to take his character's journey and put it into a physical part of the show, it was his growing sweat stain on his uniform. Did you notice that? Yes. And that leads very nicely into the Dunzo Awards. Yes, it's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the viralist, it could be the sweatiest, whatever it may be, we have decided to give these shows their just desserts. Each of us have one Dunzo to give out per show that we are watching this week. And I am going to go first because my Dunzo Award is actually Most Realistic Sweat. And that goes to the (laughs) costume department. My goodness, the sweat work in this show is exceptional. So I think we might have said it earlier, but the show takes place in New Orleans. And you and I have been in New Orleans 
during a summer night. It is damp. Oh, yeah. And, but it's not just like that the entire shirt is soaked through all day. They do such a good job with, in particular, Larry's shirt, how you just have one sweat line down his spine. And it's so consistent throughout the show. Just the details like that. Well, the front sweat stain grew throughout the day as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it was great because this show also mostly takes place in like three or four locations. So I think as far as dramas are concerned, it was uh, there were ways that they shot this somewhat cheaply, I think, where yeah. they had a really good camera and good, you know, lighting and cinematography. But. They just had a couple locations. So other than the the car chase at the beginning of the show, um, they were able to take their time with details like that, I think, because the production wasn't moving around every day. Yeah, you could tell that they invested in a few key places, that being the big talent. uh, And they also had a big name Behind it on the producing team, Antoine Fuqua, who directed Training Day, amongst a few other things. I mean, the show's poster, it says executive produced by Antoine Fuqua. So you could probably cut back in a few key areas when you had this sort of bottle situation, but it only just made all the smaller details come to life. Like, I, there was something really haunting to me about the idea that there is a shelf in Sean and Taisha's apartment where there's a little, you know, four by six inch sign that just says, don't forget to make today awesome. And it's so creepy. And it's very like clear. You could read it very clearly, but it's not, there's no like tight on it. It's just there. It's just a great piece of set dressing to remind you this isn't a. This is a relatively happy home that is horribly thrown up into upheaval by this one incident. Ian, what is your first Dunzo Award? Speaking of upheaval, my first mini award goes to the Get Away From The Windows Award. (laughs) What are you doing? He keeps, Rayshawn keeps telling you to get away from the windows. Stay away from the windows. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cops are trying to shoot in there. We all know this. Throughout the episode, it's like, stay where it's safe. Stop walking over by the windows, okay? Did I say episode or show? Whatever. (laughs) I think another um, award I want to give out is the... You're really pushing the limit of these rules here, bud. That was just a little funny thing that doesn't... This is the Dunzo Awards. We take this stuff seriously. And, That's right. Okay, so are we just ignoring everything that you just said? No. Well, we're going to have to. So what's your actual Dunzo Award? Not your cheap little trinket uh, that you got from Chuck E. Cheese that you just threw at us. The Story Structure Award goes to how every episode ends with like a cliffhanger or you know something exciting happening, which it's interesting because... For most movies and TV shows, there's pretty um, easy act breaks to follow, in drama especially. Hmm. Um, 
and they don't happen every seven or eight minutes like they do in this show. So I, I think it's just interesting. It's a bit of a different watch when every seven minutes they need something exciting to happen that you wouldn't necessarily get out of watching a normal movie or a normal TV show uh, that just made it a, a bit different, you know? Yeah. I'll be honest. This is the first, I think, Dunzo that I'm actually going to disagree with you on just because I think there were a few episodes that just kind of ended in the middle of a scene that wasn't very exciting. I mean, we had like one episode I remember, Larry's in the car with his son and they're just like talking and then the conversation just ends. And then the first scene of the next episode is a completely different location. It just felt like it was cut at the scene cut as opposed to at a moment that was going to propel you into the next episode. I agree that there are a lot of moments like that in the 15 episodes that do propel you into that. But I also, and I say this for better, honestly, that they took the time to let an episode end on a bit of a slower note so that it didn't feel like you had to constantly heighten in order to keep you engaged with the, with the story. Right. And I, I don't mean that there's always people shooting at the windows at the end of every episode. I think like him and his son having a conversation in the car and then it ends. I believe that conversation is very important to his character. It's, um, it's either something about his past or it drills into him the importance of his position in the negotiating today. Mm-hmm. And so, right, it's not super exciting, but I, I think it's still an important character realization that, uh, you know, like in storytelling, you don't always need a big moment to be a big explosion. Sometimes it's just like a revelation or the character realizes they were wrong or something like that. So uh, I, I get what you're saying. I don't I don't mean there's a big explosion at the end of every episode. Mm-hmm. That's fair. But it did just make for a bit of different storytelling is really all I'm getting at. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. So with all of that being said, I mean, this and The Fugitive, I think, are relatively self-contained with the potential for added story later on. But even with that being said, Ian, would you renew? I would, I think. It's tough. You know what? Yes, I would. Because the ending was good. The ending was good and it got me. I think there's a lot of slow parts in this. I think because of the way that the episodes have to be paced, there's a lot of rushed editing, a lot of exposition. Frankly, I was not crazy about, uh, was his name Skeet Ulrich? I was waiting until we were going to bring this up. Okay, Skeet Ulrich's New Orleans accent is one of the most wildly inconsistent things I've seen on TV. It was so weird and chaotic, but I, well, I they, found it. They often it. are, John, see Swamp Thing. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no one can get it unless they actually have it. Well, that's true. But also, it's like, it's hard to be the overtly 
bad guy cop. I think that's actually a really hard role when it's like, clearly we are supposed to hate you. Clearly you are in the wrong. Uh, I, I've seen other like indie productions that my friends have made where they try to, someone tries to play this role and even though it's written fine, it never comes across as organic to me. Yeah. Like I, I think it's just, it's really tough to get right. Um, on top of the New Orleans accent being really tough to get right. So that that took me out of it. Also, I wasn't crazy about the wife uh, as an actress in it, too. Mm. I don't know. There were a couple scenes that they had where uh, it kind of felt like she was waiting for her line to say it. And I could be wrong. I'm sure she's great in Hamilton and on Broadway and everything. Like, nothing against her. Film is a different beast. Also, sometimes there are production issues that just cause people to not have their best days or be out of it or something. You know, sometimes they give you new pages an hour before you come on. So I'm not going to like call her a bad actress, but I, I do think there are a couple scenes of hers that were rough. Um, Ian, would it yeah. surprise you to know that she won an Emmy Award? For outstanding actress in a short form comedy or drama series. For this? She won for actress. Lawrence Fishburne won for actor in that same category. So the reason I wanted to do this show was because this show is Quibi's Emmys. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, I, I completely disagree. I mean, it was mostly the scenes when it was just the two of them sitting around talking. I think the ones when the emotions were like, ramped up when there was something extreme happening it was fine you know like we're good but there were just a couple scenes in there that i was like who is this uh so that's hey you know but also i don't know everything clearly uh every it, it is subjective um but it all came together in the end i think sometimes it was a little heavy-handed Sometimes it was a little slow. Sometimes it made me roll my eyes. I don't even know if I would necessarily recommend this to people, <laughs> but I will renew. It was it was good enough. It, it it did something to me. It was upsetting. I didn't enjoy it, but it was upsetting. Yeah, it's a tough watch. It is. So, John, um, I've rambled for long enough. Would you renew? I would renew. I do think that it can get a little heavy handed at times. I think one of the things that really brings it is the pacing of it. I think they accelerated at the times that they needed to, to not get stuck in those sort of slower moments. But honestly, I really like the kind of slower, quieter moments, especially between Ray and Taisha. And I can see your reading on her, like waiting for her line. But I think that that was those two actors playing off of each other using their characters in a really meaningful way. One thing that I think Stephen James does really well as an actor in the things that I've seen him in is that sort of solemn desperation. Like you feel the yearning and the sadness that he brings, like just trying to get things from people. And they're not big things. There are things like recognition 
or just some honesty or whatever it is, he the, his stakes feel very real in the way that he plays. Or to put the pizza box down and kick your gun away. So subtle. <laughs> so subtle. So subtle. But you know what? He gets that job done. Sure. And then what Jasmine Cephas Jones does as Taisha is, again, she's pissed at him. And she knows that he wants that. And so she is withholding that a lot through in the, throughout the show. And so that's what I saw from her performance. I, I found it to be very powerful in its sort of quietness. This is probably the lead actress award with the fewest total lines. I mean, she does not like speak very much, but I think she adds a lot to that dynamic with this. Yeah, I mean, it could be the medium, the fact that like she's not in every episode, I think, or like she doesn't have a lot to do in every episode at least. Mm-hmm. So it's like maybe she has a big scene in episode two and then she has a scene in episode five and then again in episode nine, you know, where her character, because she's like a bystander in a you know, maybe it's just like, and because the way the episodes are broken up, it's not cohesive in my mind. I don't know. Yeah. But I think she really does a good job too at those like sort of explosions of emotion as well. Yeah. So, those were fine. Yeah. Of course. Ian, let's move on from New Orleans and move over to LA right after this commercial break. And now, a word from our sponsors. Next up, we are talking about The Fugitive, the sort of new post-9-11 update to the classic story of innocent man being hunted down by federal agencies. Ian, I never saw the Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones Fugitive, did you? Actually, I've only seen bits and pieces of it on TV throughout the years also. So I hear it's very good. I'm sure it is. It's something I should watch. I do think that as I get older, at least more into filmmaking or storytelling or something, I get farther away from cops and robbers and everything like that. It it feels like... uh, an easy way to heighten everything to me. So I'm just really not drawn to it as a viewer anymore. Maybe because as a writer, I feel like I can see, I can see the tricks now that I'm just not interested, but uh, nope, never seen it. I've never seen Shawshank Redemption either. So that's one of my big things. What's a big movie you've never seen, John? What's your thing? I mean, I haven't seen the fugitive. I haven't seen broadcast news and I feel like I should. Dude, I fell asleep watching broadcast news. Man, I would be disappointed in you if I hadn't also not seen broadcast broadcast news. <laughs> but we're not talking about broadcast news. We are talking about the fugitive. Um, so this was later on in Quibi's run, I believe. This actually aired in August of 2020, so shortly before the demise, the the moment. This starred uh, Boyd Holbrook as Mike Farrow, which is the Harrison Ford role, and Kiefer Sutherland as Clay Bryce, 
a really great like cop name. Clay Bryce. And he was the Tommy Lee Jones character. So The Fugitive follows a very similar story, I guess, to the original. I don't know. He doesn't start off a fugitive, but he becomes a fugitive, okay? Early on in the first episode, they tell us, let me tell you, that he was in jail for three years. His daughter grew up without him for a while. His best friend is his parole officer, I guess. His best friend. What are you doing? That's the room. Okay, that's kind of <laughs> what I thought. But uh, so there, the first episode was very heavy in the exposition of his character. It starts out at an accounting office that he's working. The guy's like, "Hey, how come you're not doing the taxes the way I want you to do my taxes?" And he's like, "Because you could go to jail. Trust me, I've been to jail." So the first episode really sets up his story and the fact that. He took a plea deal to go to jail for something he did not commit, which is why in the second episode, when he's caught up in a little subway bombing that he didn't commit almost instantly called the culprit for, he starts to run because he's like, I am not going to jail for another crime I didn't commit. Mere seconds, I would say, of Kiefer Sutherland's Clay Bryce, who is the head of the Los Angeles Police Department counterterrorism unit. So he is, for all intents and purposes, Jack Bauer. He looks at that tape. He's like, we got a hoodie. We got a guy walking away. He's on a cell phone. Let's get him. And it turns into an unrelenting manhunt for Mike Farrow. And when I say unrelenting, I mean any time that Kiefer Sutherland is confronted with any sort of evidence to the contrary by any person, whether they are his colleague, whether they are somebody who knows Mike, whether they are somebody on the street, Kiefer Sutherland basically laughs in their face and spits on their boots. He is so cavalier about just throwing away reasonable doubt because, as he says, he is 100% goddamn emotionally invested in catching this terrorist because his wife died on 9-11. 9-11 does loom very heavy over the fugitive. It may have been 19 years later, John, but they never forgot. Because as we're told, since his wife died in 9-11, he has not taken a single day off. No. He is working and he is full of one-liners. Right. And we've got this journalist to set up his emotional story arc very early on. It's like, hey, your wife died in 9-11. Are you sure that you're not too emotionally invested in this case? And he's like, you're an idiot. I'm Kiefer Sutherland. I will punch any (laughs) FBI agent in my way to get this guy that I have decided is the criminal and meanwhile, there's a reporter who you may know from The Good Place. That... Tia Sirkar is her name, is the actor's name. Thank you. And she has, due to some very shoddy journalism, also figured out that this guy, Mike Farrell. Farrow. Who is Michelangelo Farrow and was all over the news a couple of years ago. She sneaks her way into seeing some security footage, sees him, goes, that's our guy, because I've seen him before. 
then makes a tweet and gets his face everywhere out there. And because her and Jack Bauer have literally no chill, this poor man is on the run for a full day. Actually, it's only one day, the whole series. six Less than a day. Less than a day. It's really interesting, too, that they set up The Fugitive as Los Angeles Monday. But the entire thing takes place on Monday. So why would you put it on like a day of the week? I oh was my God, expecting did they a do full, that? Yeah, then the first like big scene of the show when he's in the accounting office uh, being turned down because he is a ex-con. They say Los Angeles Monday. Why not make it timed? Why not do the, let's just lean into, we get that Kiefer Sutherland is Jack Bauer 2.0. And let's just tick those clocks away at the end of every quibby. Why don't you? <laughs> and, and because there's 14 episodes and we start off at something like 8 a.m. in the morning. So, yeah. okay. It starts off that day would be episode two. So we have 13 episodes that go from about 8 a.m till 6 p.m. So every episode conceivably is about 45 minutes in <laughs> real time, right? Yeah, but man, do these people know how to zip around Los Angeles? I mean, <laughs> Keith is on one scene and then he's back at the office and he's like, give me my coat, get out of my way. Everyone's an idiot. I'm going to murder this guy in a warehouse who I guess isn't the right guy, which is also another thing that happens that scene oh where God. he just straight up shoots the guy and gets into for lack of a better term just a standoff with a uh, sort of a random person shoots the guy he's like yeah guess he wasn't our guy which is literally what he says as he just walks casually out of this uh, warehouse the whole scene i was like who is this guy and how did they get into this situation and it's not until afterwards that he's like Oh, that was a different burner phone that we pinged. So that guy was just some ecstasy dealer that I just murked. <laughs> and again, the evidence that they have against Mike is essentially that he was wearing a hoodie. They see a guy uh, putting a briefcase down in the subway who was also wearing a hoodie uh, leaving the subway. Uh, they also. And they've seen his face before. So they're yes. like, hoodie. I know who you are. Let's get him. <laughs> let's also, get him. let's arrest your wife in Chicago at the same time because for terrorism in front of all of her colleagues. Because, how dare you, he was typing out the message, kill it all. When it turns out, he was actually just typing out, kill it, Allison, which is her name, and he says that all the time. But when Because he of the explosion, then he wasn't able to finish the word Allison. Also- do many Allisons spell their name with two L's? There's like a that? bunch of Allisons. There's a bunch of ways to okay. finagle some L's and S's and O's and E's and I's in there as well. It says kill all I, son. <gasps> He's trying to kill somebody's son. <laughs> but again, when Keef Dog gets confronted with this information, he's like, are you going to believe everything that is being said you mean that that's her name and that she said it multiple times over the past six months because they have combed through his this guy's email? My sweet goodness. This poor Mike Farrow. He goes through a lot, too. I mean, we have so we have basically three tracks. We've got Keith just being merciless as hell 
try and do hunt this guy down until like episode 12 of 14. Chief Keith. Chief Keith, thank you. We've got Mike uh, going around Los Angeles, ducking into corners, escaping and evading the police. But for the most part, actually, just kind of walking around with a hat on. And then hey, he stabs that one guy in the leg so he can get a burner phone. Oh, that is true. He does stab a guy, but he also tries to get him to throw whiskey on it so that it disinfects, which, oh man, this is another great line that shows just how cavalier the police are. So they're interviewing the guy that Mike stabs in the leg and the medic is just like working on this guy with a stab wound. He goes, ah, that hurts. And she goes, yeah, you got stabbed. Thank you. I wrote that down too. That was so funny. I was like, this line has no business here, but I, I do love that it was added. And then, so those are the two main ones. And then we get the Tia Sarkar journalism angle where we somehow get her motivations, which are to excel at something because she has overbearing parents who got upset at her because she didn't get the first chair in violin when she was in high school or something. And so she basically throws all caution to the wind. She goes into the depths of journalism unintegrity and she ends up like her final step on this journey is to try to confront Mike's child and try to get an interview from this kid as like, Hey, your daddy may have killed 25 people. How do you feel about that, sweetheart? And that's basically where she Well, ends. this is after the court exploded. So conceivably hundreds of people at this point. That's true. And so first she seduces someone to get the camera footage she lies to a medic about her dead husband in order to gain access to a closed off uh, area that has a bunch of bodies. She extorts a head shop owner because she had bought Molly from this guy a few weeks ago. And she knows that he's got a camera outside that could get footage that could pin Mike Farrow to the scene. Right. And then she tries to take advantage of this little girl. Uh, she is, uh, but Glenn Howerton plays her boss and is like the righteous journalist guy that's like, hey, you can't do this. Stop it. I keep covering up your messes. So interesting that Glenn Howerton was in it. That's really all I wanted to say. It was, especially because it was such a small, kind of thankless role. Especially like when he gets confronted by his boss, who's played by uh, Christopher Marquette, uh, the guys who play that guy's character's name is Ridge, and he's from Barry, too. He's uh, Barry's uh, army buddy that uh, gets killed in the first season. He's this douchebag. I got into the journalism business to make money, guy. Yeah, and then by the end of the series, we have this like righteous journalism lesson which was pretty weird to weave into this whole thing uh oh and then we have to talk about the guy colin who is the actual criminal right and michael met at the subway bombing and they were both like helping this woman who hurt her leg so did you know it was the bad guy immediately because i did i actually did not no no like when yeah. Look at this guy. Look at those no, glasses. That's he's, him. He's got bad guy frames. 
Yeah. Yeah. And there was, he had a limp, which I was looking out for like, you know, the line in the fugitive, at least the movie, the man with one arm. Oh yeah. Right. So I was like, he's got a limp. I'm looking for someone with a defect to be a bad guy. We're meeting him immediately at the scene of the crime. Case closed. Mm-hmm. You're as quick to judge as uh, Kiefer Sutherland is to throw Mike Farrow under the bus. Hey, I will throw anyone <laughs> with a limp under the bus, <laughs> and I will accuse them of all sorts of violent crimes without any reason other than they seem suspicious to me. Hey, well, I, guess- I will shoot at those windows, even though we don't know who's in that building. Well, I guess this is as good of a time as any to give out a Dunzo Award. <laughs> Each of us get one more Dunzo Award this episode to give out to something in the fugitive. Ian, what is your Dunzo Award? The NARC Award goes to the gang member who called the police to get the million dollar reward money for catching Mike Farrow, even though he's like this tough guy gang member that like Mike is talking to his boss. And then we have this flashback that has like so much exposition in about two minutes. Yeah. And it's shot in that like foggy flashback way too. Mm -hmm. That just made me roll my eyes a thousand times. It's like a bar before they outlawed smoking in it. Yes, exactly. And even the way that like, oh, we find out it was like he was Mike's original arrest was that he was in a car that flipped and his brother and someone else died and they charged him with like DUI manslaughter basically because he was thrown from the car. But they're like based on the trajectory of where your body was thrown from the car. They're just going to say that you drove the car. So. You take the plea, take a plea deal. deal. Yeah, and he was asleep in the passenger seat, and his brother presumably was the one who was drunk driving the car. Oh, boy. Yeah, so I don't know how I got there from the NARC Award, but that episode was a lot. Yeah, because he was doing the books for that NARC, uh, and we realized that Mike no, is— No, he was doing the books for the NARC's boss, who he went right. to talk to. But yes. then the henchman— was the narc. Mm-hmm. There we go. We got What's there. your Dunzo, John? My Dunzo goes to the Sloppy Living Room Award, and that goes to our good buddy Colin, who's the actual criminal. This is one of my absolute favorite tropes in any sort of crime thing, is when somebody is being set up, and in order to prove that somebody else is guilty, you wander into their apartment and they have all the plans for everything that they were about to do laid out right on a beautifully like pristine easel that is smack dab in the middle of the living room, which is exactly what happened with our boy Colin. As Mike was being chased by the LAPD, he basically led them into this home. And even then, still, Keith was like, I don't know, these could be any bomb plans. Anyone could know that if you put a bomb here, that it would take out the biggest support beam of the courthouse. And you're like, Keith, open your eyes. This is a very clear picture. And yet, when they went to Mike's house, 
they took out some nail polish remover and they're like, hey, buddy, this is used uh, in a correct formula to make a bomb. What are you doing with all this nail polish remover, you guy who lives with two women? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, this show is wild. Would you renew it? I would not. I did trick myself into being fairly entertained uh, by, I think, the second half of the show, actually. I think in the case of both of the shows that we watched, both the dramas, the first like five episodes were kind of rough for me. And I think it's the way that, that, that Quibi does it. It's just with the way they they have to get the information out. They have to be heavy-handed with the uh, character types and tropes and everything. And then eventually you can be depressed or have fun or whatever they're trying to do with you. But no, I absolutely would not renew this show. Uh, It ends with Kiefer Sutherland telling his underlings that he loves them like his own (laughs) children, which was a callback to a couple episodes ago that didn't make sense in the first place. I hated his dynamic with his underlings the whole time. Um, also Mike was able to, sorry, Michelangelo was able to (laughs) defuse a bomb in a parking lot. Thanks to some research he did for his nine-year-old daughter's classroom assignment. Potential classroom assignment. See, the science fair was coming up. And so he was looking for potential topics, and one of them was robotics, uh, which somehow was tied to bomb making. He also diffused that bomb with about five seconds left on the timer. Right, but what was weird was they didn't even play that aspect up. I was like, okay, we're one minute away. You, you know, could see it on the thing. But they didn't do the like the sweat. They didn't do the cut the line or anything they didn't show us like he diffused the motor because of that thing he looked up it was just like 559 he opens the suitcase six o'clock colin is outside looking at his watch going why isn't this bomb going off yet and then all of a sudden boom gun to his back uh michelangelo's got colin right where he wants him and he got there he diffused a bomb and got there in a minute so pretty good job but that's exactly why i wouldn't renew what about you john (laughs) i was successfully tricked into enjoying this show i would renew it what a ride this thing was this is a queen's verdict isn't it i was just about to say all hail my queens nasty bitches for life michelangelo's for life (laughs) I want more of this. Give me Donatello. Give me Raphael. Give me all the Ninja Turtles. Hey, give me a Splinter Fugitive. I (laughs) will watch all of it. This show was effing nuts and made no damn sense. I loved how just full throttle this thing was uh, without being like very action heavy. I think the thing that sold it for me was just how freaking insane Kiefer Sutherland's character was for literally no reason throughout most of it. When hey, he, his wife died 19 years ago, John. And he 
made it. <laughs> He's like Monk. He can't move on. No, he cannot. Keith, when Keith punched the Fed in the face for not handing over one piece of evidence that proved to be completely inconsequential. I was like, this show <laughs> is unhinged and I'm all for it. And then when it got all self-righteous at the end about like, this is what journalistic integrity looks like. I was like, this is the message we're taking away about how we need to make sure we check our sources show that diffused a bomb in five seconds. Oh my goodness. What yeah, don't rush anything says the show that diffused a bomb in five <laughs> seconds. Uh, don't well, rush to conclusions. Well, it set off the bomb in my heart. Um, <laughs> I had so much fun. I don't care. When he punched that fat, he goes, you're crazy. And he goes, yeah, I am. <laughs> and talk about diffusing toxic masculinity too, because he's all gung ho. And then he's like, okay, I was wrong. Oh man. Sorry. Another thing that was just fundamentally insane about this show was the fact that they kept calling Tia Surkar like a baby throughout this. I mean, no offense to Tia Surkar. I mean, she is a lovely woman. Seems like a great act. She is a great actor. I've seen her in a bunch of different things, but she's probably in her, you know, early mid thirties. And there's like one line where Glenn Howerton, who's maybe five years older than her in real life, goes, Mazel tov, you finally got it right, you zygote. And there are so many lines like that where they're just sort of telling this woman how young she is as if she is like wearing a Jansport backpack and walking on to, uh, you know, the school of journalism for the first time. It was so bizarre. What's weird, too, is they keep alluding to the fact that he's this old, grizzled journalism guy, and he keeps going, I'm 44. What are you talking about? I'm not old. So why is he talking? Why did they do this age thing with both of them? And also, just to highlight, highlights a weird thing about this whole quibby drama adventure to me, John, is that I wouldn't recommend to people the show that I would renew and I would recommend to people the show I wouldn't renew. So you Uh, tell me exactly what is wrong with me. Well, let's find out right after this commercial break. (laughs) (laughs) And now a word from our sponsors. So we got through two full Quibi dramas. Both of them basically played out like movies cut up into six and eight minute chunks. Wouldn't you say like, I mean, they were technically full seasons of television arcs here and there, but I don't know. I found myself doubting the viability of a slate of, dramas that were sort of holy TV series. Didn't you think like, do you think I, I mean, they did feel a lot like movies as opposed to TV shows. Yeah. Natalie was talking about how, can you imagine being someone that's just like trying to kill time on a bus and you watch 
seven minutes of the fugitive is one thing because you'd be all jacked up from it. But can you imagine trying to pass time doing whatever in your commute and you're just like casually watching free Ray Sean? Yeah, I can't. No, no, you have to watch free Ray Sean in chunks, at least several episodes, if not as a full thing. Like, it doesn't make much sense to do this as from storytelling, but I think uh, more to the fugitive, if you want to build a service that people watch on their phone and watch in chunks, it does make sense the way it's built to keep people watching another episode, if that makes sense. It does, but one caveat to that. The way that Quibi released shows was every day. So crazy. It is crazy. But also think about the tension that was built up towards the end of episodes. Like you were talking about with Free Ray Sean, how you were saying how they managed to make every episode end with something exciting. And while I didn't fully agree with that, I feel like if you were watching this day to day and you were waiting essentially for the next day to get this next installment, all the tension that you've built up in that previous sentence gets lost instantly because of the way that you are releasing these shows. Uh, And I think what they were trying to do was sort of spread the love, try to get word of mouth, get people on board. But unfortunately, as we now learn in retrospect, nobody was talking about Quibi shows and maybe sometimes they won Emmys, but there just wasn't any sort of momentum that I feel like could sustain throughout the course of their releases. You have to watch these things in chunks, as you said, for it to make it relatively emotionally investing, which mm-hmm. is something that is so essential to dramas just as a genre. Like you could turn on and turn off like a competition show like we were talking about last week but if you're asking the audience to go on a journey with these characters you need to give us enough time at once to give a crap about these characters in order for us to follow you throughout the two three weeks of these episodes coming out and to that point i think one of my biggest grudges not just because i've spent most of my life trying to get into movies or TV or theater. And therefore I hate short content because it uh, threatens everything that I am. But most things I watch on my phone, 90%, I do not retain. I don't remember any GIF, meme, TikTok, real short thing that I watched yesterday. And Not really even today, if I'm going to be honest. So if I watched eight minutes of something yesterday and then I'm turning it on today, I, as a person, I'm going, what the hell happened? What am I watching? Like Kiefer Sutherland punched a guy, I guess. Like maybe that's that's what I'm remembering. I think you would have to have these really intense, jacked up things to happen in order for people to remember what's going on in the story the day before when at least in 22 minute long 
episodes or 44 minute long episodes. It's like you spend enough time with the characters, I think, to retain what's going on a week before. Mm -hmm. But I really cannot imagine this doing well for my attention span. No. And again, I think from just an investment standpoint, it seems a very daunting task. I think what Quibi was sort of gearing up for was more sort of anthology stuff. I see Quibi as the sort of ideal platform for short films. You know, these self-contained six to 10 minute stories. Because that is, I feel like, a very underutilized platform for filmmakers in general. You know, it is an important one. It's how people sort of are able to show off their chops. There's also just plenty of stories out there that can't sustain themselves because that's just not what they need. You just need six to 10 minutes to tell something. And I think if Quibi had leaned a little bit more into that side of things, you know, giving people those opportunities to tell one story in a short period of time, that would have been significantly more impactful than taking a long story and slicing it up with a meat cleaver whenever you feel like getting to those six to 12 inches or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that it's a cool experiment. Like I do appreciate that they did this, but that's quite an investment. And even like the fugitive seemed pretty expensive. Yeah. Some of the CGI was a little funny, but you could say dumb. It's well, it it was, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It wasn't as bad as other things I've seen, but it wasn't great. Yeah. Uh, Definitely when he's standing in front of the courtyard when it blows up. That's that's the worst one to me. Uh, but it was expensive, so I appreciate them putting all this capital into this experiment. But I do think that they threw a lot of money at an idea and did not think a lot of the psychology of it through, to be honest. No, I think that that is fair, too. And like the idea of The Fugitive, I mean, it is proven... IP. But to speak to that, notice that we haven't talked about the creators of either of these shows. So The Fugitive was created by a guy named Nick Santora, who I looked it up. His only other like major credit was actually a different Quibi show, which was an adaptation of Most Dangerous Game. Wow. And then Free Ray Sean was created by a guy named Mark Marino. And he didn't have any major credits either beforehand. I mean, so they were taking these ideas and they were giving them to relatively untested talent, which is something that, I mean, spread the love, give it out to more people. But again, when you are experimenting with this and you're just trying to bolster an idea and putting sort of a new face on it, sometimes that gamble doesn't pay off and it doesn't uh, make for very lasting storytelling. Even though I would watch both of these shows again, I'm just saying that it is sort of an interesting marriage of we've got this idea, we want to give this to new talent, and yet for some reason 
just psychologically, it's still not even going to click with people. I wouldn't be surprised if Free Rayshon was a script that they bought that they were like, hey, can you rewrite this to be seven-minute chunks instead? Can you quibify this? Can you quibify this, please? And they said, what's a quibby? And they said, well, you know that feeling when you fart in your own face and you look around and luckily no one else has smelled it? That's a quibby. Yeah. That's quintessential. That's quintessential quibby. I'm pretty sure that both of these shows were written all by the same person and then directed all by the same person, right? Yes, they were. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like they just made two movies. It's, uh, I don't know. I applaud the try, but I do too. can you imagine watching Free Ray Sean on a bus? It doesn't work. <laughs> no, I can't imagine watching The Fugitive on a subway. Yikes. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a it's a tall order and I again I think that they invested in these dramas because they wanted the prestige. They got it a little bit with Free Ray Sean, actually, you know. And I guess Roku was really the one that capitalized on it because now Roku has an original show that won two Emmy Awards. Does Good the Emmy Roku. say Roku though? I wonder. I wonder what's engraved on there. That'd be interesting. I'd be nah, curious. dude, you uh, you don't retroactively engrave an Emmy. That'd be fun. I, I wish I had a retroactive engraving machine. So, yeah, I think overall, I think we can agree, dramas on a platform like Quibi are a very, very tough sell. In yes. Yeah. Ian, where can people find us? Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us one and done pod at gmail.com. Let us know why this is the best version of The Fugitive, despite there having been several other versions, including I think a one and done from 2000, which was a more traditional drama. Ian, this uh, is undoubtedly the best version of The Fugitive. There is no other fugitive. I refuse to watch the fugitive because I feel like they have not been beat. There is they could not be bested. Hey, if there was an Oscar for older person turning into an even older Jeremy Irons award, <laughs> they would give it to Kiefer Sutherland because he is starting to look like Jeremy Irons to me. Anyway, uh you can follow us there. You can um Send me money at Hamilton on Venmo. And you can buy yourself a Lodge Pan Scraper. If you have trouble scraping off those dishes. Right, John? Correct. We will be back next week. We're halfway through Quibuary. We will be talking about some reality shows next week. Until then, quib yourself crazy. Quib on, John. Go quib yourself. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media. 